Welcome back to Design Emergency, the podcast where co-founders Alice Rostern and myself, Paola Antonelli, prove to the world that design is a force to be reckoned with and a fundamental actor in any attempt to make the world a better place for all. And today we are online with another fabulous designer, Anjali Singhvi. Welcome to Design Emergency, Anjali. Thank you so much for having me. Anjali is a reporter and senior staff editor for Spatial Investigations at the New York Times. And by doing so, she covers a really wide range of topics and specializes in investigative visual journalism. With her work, she explains really complex phenomena to an audience as wide as possible. So she is a designer to the core. She's an expert in forensic 3D reconstructions of crime scenes and digital investigations. Just like me and just like so many of the people that we had on the podcast, she's trained as an architect and she holds a master's degree in urban planning and urban analytics from Columbia University in New York. And at Columbia, she was actually part of the Center for Spatial Research that I that is very dear to me. We actually have in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art several of their work. And when she was there, she was examining the internal displacement of people as a result of decades of armed conflict in Colombia. Colombia, the country, not the university. Today, we're going to talk about one of the most important forms of design, which is data visualization, the visualization of complex phenomena, the attempt to explain by means of design. Anjali, could you please explain to the world what investigative visual journalism is and how it connects to visualization design? Certainly. Uh, thank you so much for the introduction. So um, investigative visual journalism is um, a fairly new discipline in journalism that combines traditional investigative reporting techniques with uh, digital forensic and spatial analysis of evidence. It involves a lot of uh, using a lot of open source visual materials, such as photos, videos, data, drawings, architectural plans, um, to explain complex stories and to re reconstruct a news event. For the work we do at the Times, we use a lot of 3D modeling at the core of our investigations. Um, to deconstruct the exact moment in space and time and to show readers what happened, where and how. We'll often use a lot of innovative techniques and methods in our reporting as well, um, and also for our storytelling presentation. The goal is to hold the people, people in power accountable and to give our readers a greater visual understanding of a news event. So what makes an architectural background so useful and so important for this kind of discipline? My background in architecture and like some of my colleagues who are also on my team, it really helps in uh, getting a good a good and quick spatial understanding of, of a space, a news event took place or where a crime scene happened that we're trying to investigate. Also being able to read architectural drawings and plans uh, is, is really, really helpful because then we're able to interview experts and engineers about a certain based on the things that we can read, we're able to read. Can you please give us an example of an investigative reporting um, essay in which you used really your skills as an architect to gather the data? I think, for instance, the Bronx fire you mentioned was very architecturally intense. Yeah, certainly. So the, the Bronx fire um, was a, a project about an 
an apartment fire that had started in a, in a multi-story building in New York. Um, and it had killed 17 people. And uh, it was one of the deadliest fires in the city uh, in a long time. And this was a, it was interesting to uh, investigate and a good target for us because the fire had actually started on the lowermost floor of the building and it hadn't really uh, left that area. So it was pretty much contained, but a lot of people um, died due to smoke inhalation and not the actual fire. So we wanted to investigate what had really happened and why did people die. And so we got floor plans of the buildings and worked with fire scientists really closely who helped us uh, figure out uh, and create a, a 3D smoke simulation that showed us uh, the, the most likely path of the smoke that killed so many people. Um, this building was also particularly complex in its design. So um, it, it, it only had corridors on every other floor, for example. Um, and so we were trying to understand how the staircases worked. We weren't able to get access to the site. Uh, for the majority of the duration of, of the, the the project. And so without getting actual access to the site, we only had floor plans and certain photos and videos um, to tell us how the building was built and where the pathways led to um, and how the, the staircases were, were stacked. Um, I remember working uh, with a lot of uh, residents of the building to map the actual layout of the apartments and the, the apartment numbers as well. Um, and that was important because, you know, there there's small things like they will skip I and O's, for example. So an apartment I's and O's just, you know, don't exist. And in interviewing President the Corroborating, we were able to figure out the exact location of the apartments. And I, I mentioned this because later on in the project, we were able to get a 911 call data so we had audios from 911 calls uh, for, I think, over 100 calls or something um, that described the the scene that was happening. And they all mentioned their apartment. So when you sort of pair those together, we were able to see exactly where this call was coming from. And we were able to map that on our 3D model. And we found that the smoke had actually reached uh, the top floor within uh, minutes of the beginning of the fire. And by the way, we're talking about very visual essays. So I would like to remind you that you can find images to accompany this interview in our Instagram feed, design.emergency. I think that one of the first time uh, when the world of architecture was confronted with this uh, relatively new discipline, or at least new to us, discipline of forensic architecture was when forensic architecture about 10 years ago showed at the Venice Biennale. Forensic architecture is based in Goldsmiths University and it's similar to the lab at, Go at Columbia University. So is this a new discipline, this visual investigation journalism? Certainly, it's certainly new, um, or I would say not really new anymore, but certainly a new kind of discipline in journalism because it, it involves a lot of uh, open source visual materials and, and user generated content, which is, uh, which, you know, we see a lot, we're seeing a lot more of on the social media platforms. And so using, using all of that in the reporting itself and, and like using new techniques and innovative techniques to report and to, to investigate uh, the evidence is, is I would say, uh, new. It does combine uh, traditional investigative reporting as well. So you are not 
you're you're always going you're trying to you know you're you're on the ground reporting you're talking to interview you're talking to witnesses residents uh all of that all like that is not going away you know that exists and then on top of that this is it combines additional additional layers of reporting using the the open source visual evidence to uh, to reconstruct an event so another great example that you mentioned to me is the collapse of the 12 story condominium in in Miami in Surfside that was like in June 2021 and it was a real disaster because there were dozens of death and I understand that you only had one video for that so how did you go about reconstructing it in the amazing story that you published in the times Yeah, that was a that was a really interesting project. Like you said, we only had one CCTV camera footage uh and we we like really dissected that footage frame by frame, watched it over 100 times to understand what happened, but it was only one side of the story, just one uh one angle that captured it. So we we foyered, we got a full set of floor plans um of the of the building and we interviewed a lot of engineers and residents to understand how the building was built and how it could have collapsed the the original architects and engineers of the building they weren't alive anymore so we couldn't interview them to ask why uh, this building was built this way so we had to use a lot of uh, the 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 techniques the investigative techniques that I was talking earlier about um to figure out what had happened we use uh historic satellite imagery we created a 3d model based on the drawings itself to um to to explain to readers and map out the different uh the different flaws in the building there were certain beams in the buildings that were potentially problematic uh we found uh, after interviews with engineers we also analyzed after collapse photos so there are a lot of photos and videos after the collapse that we sort of combined poured through and like mapped uh, mapped together on the 3D model itself to help understand the scene from different angles we also were able to get some interviews from from residents from witnesses who had captured initial moments of the of the collapse or just moments from the street uh that showed some water pouring down the basement so little details from different angles we uh we had to sort of like piece together which is true for all of these kind of projects we we create a a timeline of sorts that involves getting met, from like getting metadata from images and videos collected from open source social media platforms and any timestamp that is either like official timestamp from the authorities that we got or a timestamp that is uh say like from a, a a police dispatch audio so we often use a lot of different kinds of sources to to corroborate and to piece together this timeline uh and then to to fill in the gaps and the holes and then figure out what happened so you say we can you please describe to me one of these pieces how long it takes who's involved the surfside condo collapses what happens Yeah so the the surfside condo collapse uh happened and immediately uh me and a few other reporters started to gather information this is uh it's 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 a breaking news so we responded to the breaking news by some initial articles 
that were just about written um, in text. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. written with maybe some visual elements about either like a, an illustration or, or like a graphic about uh, the the floor plan or um, the building itself, uh, like a, an aerial image. So that's that's like a very short term piece that we get out quickly, and then we work on we work towards like a, a longer term. Uh, more investigative uh, story where uh, that can sometimes takes take a month, two months, or even six months. Um, and how many people are part of the team? So there are the initial reporters, right, that have been gathering, have been talking to the authorities, have been gathering the material, and then who else is involved and which expertise? So the team involves about three to six people. Uh, there will be lead reporters uh, uh, who will be the main reporters, main in charge of reporting and figuring out the, the story and storyboarding the, uh, the investigation. And then we'll have uh, designers and graphics editors who will work on the modeling, the 3D modeling, animation, and production uh, of the piece, and then an editor. But uh, these projects are very collaborative in nature. So a lot, of, a lot of the times people wear different hats in the projects. And so sometimes... Uh, the person making the 3D model will also be reporting the designers as well. Like they will be figuring out how the story is told on the page, uh, whether it is interactive, whether there's a video, whether there's a map uh, that we combine with the text elements. So there are a lot of different visual assets that we need to think about. And what kind of feedback do you get from the New York Times readers? Do they write to you? Do they suggest different angles? How does it usually, what kind of reception does it usually get? So people are, uh, they're very receptive to the, the visual um, explanations of uh, and visual investigations that we, we produce. A lot of the times people will reach out and, and say that they had never uh imagine that this is this is what had happened and the the visuals really helped them understand what had actually happened and given them a greater understanding of of a news event you are an investigative reporter you do it visually you do it spatially but you investigate and report and i know that in the case of the turkish earthquake in uh, in 2023 i think it was february right yeah it was yeah. february 6th february you were there. You went to Turkey and you were there with the investigative team. Can you, uh, can you explain to us what you did when you were there on the ground? What was it? Pictures, drawings, um, interviews, just a, a sense of the kind of data that you gathered? Yeah, so, so Turkey was, uh, was different. It was a really big event uh, and a very important news event for us. And so I, I went there went to Antakya, which is the south of Turkey. And the reporting, basically, it started with just collecting all the photo and video evidence of the site from various sources shortly after the quake. So we were we were investigating this one particular building called Renaissance that had collapsed and several people had died uh, in that one building collapse. And it was... It was supposed to be earthquake proof and it had collapsed nonetheless. And so And it kind of had folded over. I remember Yeah, I remember it, like, it toppled piece, over. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, it mm-hmm. had completely toppled over, not really pancaked like a lot of buildings, a lot of other buildings did in the quake. And so it was unusual and then, you know, like a, a good target for us to investigate. So 
this was one of the projects that um, I was there in Turkey for. And we we were at the site after the quake and visited it multiple times, you know, in, in, in small groups during the course of the project to just collect information about the surroundings and document the, the structural details that were visible in the debris. Uh, we weren't really allowed to go really farther in at the site. Um, so we were we just made the most of uh, what we could from where we were able to get access to the site. And then we also flew uh, a drone over the site to get a more aerial view of the uh, of the site itself. And that was important because we were we we're trying to investigate how and why the building collapsed. And uh, some experts had told us that you know it could have been liquefaction or or or, or something liquefaction what does it mean what does liquefaction mean oh liquefaction it, under the ground right so it means that we're in a seismic event where the ground basically acts like liquid and the building just sort of huh. sinks in and collapses so so that was one of the theories that we were trying to investigate and when we shot the drone we got a really good picture of the the foundation and of the the ground from the the site from the aerial level and we interviewed a lot of engineers and experts and showed them the evidence and that sort of ruled out the liquefaction theory because you you could see the foundation pretty much intact and at the same level from that aerial shot. So that's just, that's just one of the ways we were able to um, sort of rule out and investigate, investigate what had happened. Um, the other, the other thing we were able to do on, on the ground there was just to get, uh, any sort of CCTV video footage that had captured the collapse in any way. Uh, there was a gas station right next to the, the site of the collapse where the camera had still sort of captured part of the collapse. And my colleague, Beryl Eski, who, who's Turkish and was able to help with the language, she and I um, went to the gas station. We were able to get this CCTV footage. And that was very, very crucial because it it really showed us how the the quake hit the building and and what it really it, so it captured the moment of the quake when it hit this building. So those kind of things on the ground are very helpful, and uh, that's something that's really hard to get when you're not uh, when you don't have access to the site. Um, so so we did that, and then we were we talked to a lot of local sources and um, try to get floor plans and went to a lot of uh, offices. Uh, a lot of them were just damaged and didn't have access. So we had to really figure out who the right person is in, in, in like a disaster scenario and to try to track them down in person and get documentation and floor plans and legal files from cases to get uh, any information we can find about the permits of the building, how this building was made, uh, what had happened, who had authorized this, why weren't there security or safety checks in the building, why was it built this way. And I'm sure that it takes also a lot of sensitivity because you're going to zones of disaster and people have lost loved ones and uh, uh, and there's a situation that is very heightened. It's not like people can really take the time to speak to you. So I think you also probably had to develop certain skills to be able to speak to the locals, not only to the authorities. Did you get training for that? I have done trainings for ground reporting before that involved a lot of different kinds of scenarios, disaster reporting, which was this one, 
and just, you know, like if you're covering wildfires, what you should and shouldn't do, those kind of things. But really, I think it's it's more about your instinct in the moment when you're interviewing someone who's, who's lost, uh, you know, their entire family and, and trying to assess in the moment uh, whether it's right to, you know, to, to push them to interview, to get something or to, to wait or, or, or let go. For Turkey, uh, because I did not speak the language, my my translator uh, and reporter Biril Eski, she she really helped me uh, in getting the, the questions across to the local people and like letting me know that maybe you know this is not a good time or we should do this or that. Uh, so I definitely relied heavily on our local journalists for for this particular project. And in order to make that happen, I mean, of course, you wanted to be an architect and then you were rerouted, but there needs to be also a passion for journalism. I was an urban planning student at Columbia, and I think that was the the first time I had uh, sort of become aware of this kind of work that uh, the Times was doing. And I had not really realized before that um, th- that someone with my skills could actually be useful in the newsroom. And so I... Uh, I applied for a summer internship at the Times, uh, um, interviewed and got that job in um, summer of 2016. I still remember one of my first stories that I worked on was the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando. Um, this, I believe, was like the, the first week of my internship. And my colleagues and I were working on collecting information about the, the nightclub itself to, to understand where people were, where the gunman was, um, what had taken place um, that night. And so we'd gotten a floor plan, I believe, and uh, I was able to read it because of my background uh, in architecture and create a, a really quick uh, quick and dirty 3D model of the club uh, where we could actually map the sequence of events to show what had happened um, that night. And, and those visuals went in a story with that we put together uh, with text, just explaining like a, a timeline of events. So it was, you know, a, a straight timeline of events, but then had this illustration, this graphic that actually helped you visualize, okay, this gunman was here. This was, this is how big the space was. And this is where uh, people were killed or people were taking shelter. So it, it helped uh, give you like a, a better understanding of the space itself. Um, and yeah, I've, uh, I've stuck around since then. Since then. Well, you know, it, of course, all of these visual essays are fundamental in terms of the mission of journalism to inform the public and to make the truth come to the surface. But in some cases, they're even more momentous than usual. For instance, I remember the story that you wrote about how the police killed Breonna Taylor. You published the story, it was December 2020. The, the assassination um, had happened in March, even before George Floyd, that was in, in, in May. So um, Breonna Taylor was a medical worker at the height of the pandemic. So those people that were considered fundamental, necessary workers. And she was killed by at least seven police officers in her home while she was sleeping in bed in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, the New York Times published almost like a timeline or an investigative report, uh, reporting a piece that you worked on. Can you tell us how that came about, not only the piece itself, but also the months of gathering of information and what kind of effect it had on the public? That project was a, that was a special one 
uh, and I worked on with my my colleagues um, in video with Malachi Brown um, and others. This was this was special because it there was no body camera footage of the incident itself. So because of that, we had to just use a lot of different kinds of techniques and and ways to to show readers what had happened that night uh, when she was killed and when the police fired 32 rounds of bullets uh, at Brianna. Uh, so we we used uh, police testimonies, uh, witness testimonies, uh, police statements, and then we reconstructed uh, the entire scene in 3D. Um, and using the, the evidence that was released as part of the grand jury proceedings, we were able to map every single bullet hole and the path of the bullet in that in, in that house in Brianna's house so we did not have any body cam footage like I said but we had a lot of other evidence for for this particular story we had um, transcripts of, of interviews we had uh, a, a video from the SWAT team that had uh, gone in uh, right after she was killed we had uh, the autopsy report we had 911 calls and an FBI ballistic report. So we we try to piece everything, all the spatial information. We try to extract all of that from these these different kind of evidence materials, and then map that on a on a three D model. We also use some details from uh, like a, I think I believe it was like a real estate website that had uh, a three sixty tour of an apartment that was similar to Brianna's, but that sort of like gave. It gave us like a good walkthrough of what that space was like. And that again, like helped us model it better and like uh, visualize what was where. Um, it was it was a tough story to work on. Um, and we had to really be careful about not showing anything that we didn't know or that because, because there was no footage, right? Um, and we had to um, really go through all the testimonies from the officers who were there and the ones who came after uh, to, to pick out details that sort of were spatial in nature. So if someone said that they were bending over by the door as someone else was um, opening the door and seeing Brianna, so all of that information is, it, it, they ha- it has like a space and time element to it. And we mapped all of that out and mapped the movements of the officers the seven officers onto the 3D model and were able to um, show what had happened and in in the duration that had happened and where the shots were fired from. So some of the police officers were actually indicted. Do you think that the New York Times essay had part played any part in, in the indictment? It certainly um, was a, a full and comprehensive account of of the of that incident that night, uh, and really captured the the scene from a lot of different angles, uh, and you know, like I said, in absence of body cam footage, the three D modeling really allowed us to show what happened, uh, and it, it's it's a really good example to to show how powerful visual evidence and investigation use, using three D modeling and uh, open source evidence can be. Another wonderful example of investigative journalism refers to something that does not even exist anymore. I am talking about the amazing story that 
you and your team and co-workers worked on about the Tulsa Race Massacre. So the Tulsa Race Massacre was a, a group of white supremacists in the city of Tulsa that burned down over three days, if I'm not mistaken, two or three days, burned down a whole blossoming, really thriving black neighborhood of businesses and middle class and families. And it was one of the blights, one of the most devastating um, chapters in the history of the United States and of racism in the United States. And in December of 2021, I think, no, in May of 2021, the New York Times and you published this uh, whole reconstruction of how Tulsa and the race massacre happened. Can you please tell us how it all came to be? Who made the decision to, uh, to work on this? How long it took? It was really an amazing piece of journalism. Thank you so much. Yeah, so uh, my colleague Yuli and I, we started reporting on this project. Um, um, I, I believe it was just the two of us in the beginning. And we were trying to just just see what, what's out there. So we started with um, just, you know, reading books about the incident. I also actually did not know about the Tulsa Race Massacre. So it started off with, you know, reading accounts, reading books, and just getting an understanding of what this neighborhood Greenwood was like, what was it in relation to the rest of Tulsa, and what kind of businesses were there. It was a really thriving, um, self-sufficient Black neighborhood uh, that was completely destroyed. So that's how we sort of started getting a good understanding of what had been done about the the massacre and what was out there. Uh, and then we, we we knew that we wanted to tell the story spatially. And um, so we combined archival reporting, uh, data analysis, and also 3D modeling um, to, to bring it back to life, so bring, to bring Greenwood back to life. Um, this was, it was difficult in a way because we, we only had two surviving photos of Greenwood uh, that captured this one block that we featured in a piece that we wanted to detail um, in and, and profile in detail. It, it was uh, it was the Greenwood Avenue where a lot of the businesses had been uh, and a lot of, um, it was like the heart of Greenwood, this one avenue. And we wanted to really showcase that for our readers. But most of the photos had burned down in the massacre. So there were only two surviving photos, um, which is a really stark contrast from the, the Brianna project that we were talking about just now, where we had over a thousand photos to, to build a 3D model. So here we only had two photos. So my colleagues, um, they, they, you know, uh, my colleagues Mika and, and Gilbert, they extracted every possible information they could find from just these two photos uh, and then used uh, 3D modeling and, uh, and, and, you know, techniques to, to build it exactly to scale um, and to build whatever you could see from, from those two photos. Um, and a big part of this project was archival reporting, which is something uh, we don't normally do in 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 our newsroom or like in in our projects because news is always like forward looking and you know we're like always covering the news that is ongoing. But this incident happened 100 years ago, so we had to really find different kinds of archival sources for this project. We uh, reached out to librarians and archivists and asked them for. Um, their undigitized collection that they 
would have um, uh, of Tulsa or any map that they would have uh, because we, we really wanted to construct the the space, the uh, Greenwood in like right before the massacre, like in 1921, you know, uh, which is when the, the massacre happened. And so anything that was from, say, like 1915 or earlier wasn't really useful because it had really grown so much, even in the span of two to three years, the population and the, the geography of it. So getting the exact year of the uh, map was really helpful, too. And we, we got we got lucky um, on this project as well. We were able to find the exact uh, map that we were looking for uh, that had the street names. And then we we found these maps called the Sanborn Fire Insurance Maps that have the building footprints on them. Uh, and they were at the Tulsa Historical Society and Museum. It was a lot of like trying to, you know, track down these sources and then and then getting all the raw materials together and then creating a 3D model out of it. We used, uh, we also used machine learning to actually extract the building footprints from these Sanborn fire insurance maps. Um, and then uh, we created a tool to enter heights, individual heights of the building because we wanted we wanted an actual hierarchy in our model to show people that this was downtown Tulsa and this is Greenwood um, across the uh, the railway tracks. So very different kind of reporting for this project, for sure. And also corroboration was very difficult and and interesting. We we had to look at a lot of um, newspaper ads and any sort of archival materials like city directories and census records that could help us understand what businesses were there uh, in 1921 before the massacre. So what was destroyed and then also who lived where. So these sources uh, really helped us piece together and bring, bring this to life. Um, And uh, we, uh, we, we got some of that from ancestry.com. I don't know um, if you know that, but, it's it's just one of the the many machine sources. learning uh, ancestry dot com archives. It's funny because it's analog, it's digital, it's high tech, it's low tech. It's basically everything you can find. It's true investigations. And by the way, I want to remind you all that you can find images accompanying this interview in our Instagram feed. Uh, design.emergency. What would you wish for your profession? Would you like more recognition? Would you like to uh, have more young people understand that it's a viable way to make a living and also to contribute to society? So do you think that there's anything that you would like to say to an audience as wide as possible? Um, I, I would say that it's it's uh, journalism and the role of open source reporting is, is just more and more important uh, now more than ever. And the role of, of citizens in, in journalism as well, uh, especially. So, uh, you know, a, a lot of these projects that I talked about, they, are, they were made possible because of the open source materials that were uploaded by the citizens, by the people who are just, you know, regular people, but they they're uh, they capture the critical moment that helps us investigate what happens and then hold the power to accountable um like you know the, the capital riots for example or the brown spire project that i was talking about where we actually used videos from 
this app called Citizen, where people were live streaming uh, the, the fire from different angles. And I would just say that just more needs to be done to to um, get this kind of journalism to be more mainstream and uh, and use it more uh, more freely and to to use it to investigate important news events. And for our own agenda, I would like to point out being good citizens and being great designers as a service, service to humankind. So today we have been speaking with Anjali Singhvi, who is a reporter and senior staff editor for spatial investigations at the New York Times. And it's been a true delight. Thank you so much for having me. You are on Design Emergency, the podcast that Alice Rostorn and I, Paola Antonelli, founded to show the importance of design in making the world a better place for all. We thank you very much for listening today and we hope that you will be back soon to listen to other interviews with great designers, architects and accidental designers that like Anjali give design the name that it deserves. Thank you very much for listening.